If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Salon Kitty was the most notorious brothel in 1930s Berlin. Yet little did its clientele, foreign diplomats and high-ranking army officers among them, know that while they were cavorting with sex workers, they were also being spied upon by Nazi agents. This little-known episode is the subject of a new book by Erzbrunner, Julius Schrammel and Nigel Jones. Here, in conversation with Spencer Mizzen, Nigel explains what Salon Kitty tells us about the paranoia and petty rivalries of the Third Reich. My first question, Nigel, was I was wondering if you could begin by introducing us to Salon Kitty, the, the, the subject of, of your new book. Yes, this was a, a brothel that flourished in the notorious Berlin atmosphere between the wars, which anyone who's watched the film Cabaret will know what I'm talking about. Berlin was a bit of a hotspot for sex of every description and had clubs catering for every single indulgence known to man and women. And uh, of a population of 4 million, they reckon that about 30,000 women and a similar number of boys and young men were engaged in selling their bodies because, of course, Berlin in those days was economically on its knees, which was one of the factors that led to the Nazi seizure of power. Kitty's Salon, uh, which is in a prosperous part of Berlin called Charlottenburg in the West, was one of the most notorious and high-end brothels of the era. Now, when the Nazis came to power, they clamped down heavily on sex prostitution was restricted and many of the prostitutes were forbidden to apply their trade and in fact were arrested as asocials and confined to concentration camps salon kitty though continued to flourish and this was probably because it was used by some of the top ranking nazis themselves including people like josef goebbels the propaganda minister heydrich's own deputy kaltenbrunner who lived next door to it, and others as well. Kitty, the lady who ran the brothel, who managed and owned the brothel, Kitty Schmidt, her name was, was given a sort of privilege to continue to function as a brothel madam. And then Heydrich took it a step further and decided to convert the brothel into a listening post, a spy listening centre. And he did this by setting up about 50 bugs, 50 microphones in secret places like under the beds, vases, and all eight or nine rooms, the love rooms, as they were called, where the prostitutes in the brothel entertained their clients, were bugged so that every whisper and other noises was recorded by SD technicians who were in the cellars of the building on a 24-hour basis, and it was recorded there. And also, Heydrich recruited girls, young women, to staff the brothel. So about 20 SD agent, trained agents, were in the brothel working as prostitutes, and they were supposed to make full reports, full written reports, after they had entertained a client on what this client had said. 
And naturally, visitors to Berlin, important visitors, were directed to the brothel so that Heydrich could listen in to what they were saying and thinking. So what was in it for Heydrich? What sort of people visited Simon Kitty? I mean, you've, you've mentioned a few names there already. And who exactly was he trying to ensnare? Heydrich was interested in everyone and everything. He thought that everyone in Germany shared his own malign nature. He thought that everyone was up to no good because he himself was an evil, immoral man who was up to no good. And he was inordinately suspicious of almost everyone, including his own deputies. And therefore, he wanted to gain information about everyone. His main goal, in my view, was not necessarily just the pursuit of Nazi ideology. It was the pursuit of total power. He was a very amoral man and he wanted to gain power. And information is power. I think his long-term view, if he hadn't been assassinated by British trained agents in Prague, his long-term aim, I believe, was to succeed Hitler himself as the new Fuhrer. But he was only on his way to that when he, when his career was cut off by the grenades and bullets of, of these agents in Prague, fortunately. Now, the brothel was named after somebody called Kitty Schmidt, who owned and managed this establishment. She's an extraordinary figure, isn't she? And obviously absolutely critical to this story. But she's also a figure who remains kind of shrouded in mystery, isn't she? I mean, so what can you tell us about her? What do we know definitely about her and what remains mysterious? She was a shadowy figure. She was born in Hamburg. And perhaps an interesting thing about her is that she was sent as a young woman to England just before the First World War broke out, where she worked apparently as a governess to middle class families and as a piano teacher. Many young German women did come to England to improve their English and improve their social skills around about that time. So that wasn't particularly unusual. But while she was in England, or rather in Wales, because she settled in Cardiff in South Wales, she met, had a child by, and eventually married even more shadowy figure, a Spaniard called Zamit, who we think he was the son of the Spanish consul in South Wales and fathered a child by Kitty Schmidt, her only child, a daughter called Kathleen, who was born at the beginning of the First World War. As soon as the First World War came to an end, and we don't really know what happened to Kitty during the First World War when there would have been a lot of anti-German prejudice, so we think she had a, a pretty hard time in Britain at that time. As soon as, she, as the war was coming to an end, she got a postcard written by one of her sisters who was in Berlin, saying, come home, Kitty, the streets here are paved with gold. And Kitty did. She returned from Britain to Berlin at the uh, right very soon after the war ended and um, set up in business quite quickly as a brothel uh, owner and manager. We don't know where she got the money to do that, but she did. And um, she soon became not only the proprietor of a brothel, and it moved several times before locating to the street in Charlottenburg, Giesebrechtstrasse, where it was eventually ended up. She became a socialite as well. She knew a lot of actors and writers and people like that in Germany. And so she became a very wealthy and prominent socialite figure in Berlin, in the Weimar Republic, between the wars. The sources are sparse and few and far between, but we've got 
enough evidence from people who still uh, knew her, who remembered her, even though they were children at the time, because she continued to operate her brothel both throughout the war years and into the early 50s. And when she died in 1954, her daughter, the daughter who'd been born in Wales, Kathleen, took over the running of the brothel, although on a much smaller scale than earlier. And it masqueraded as a pension, a guest house for artistic people. And quite a few artistic visitors from abroad came there. One who did was a quite a famous film director called Claude Lanzmann, who was a French-Jewish filmmaker who made a big documentary, a well-known documentary, about the Holocaust called Shoah. And he was quite frank at the end of his life in confessing the fact that he had lived in Salon Kitty after the war and taken full advantage of its sexual services. He said he was a young man and um, with a high sex drive and he, he had no shame about doing that. So from people like him and from people in the vicinity of the Giesebrechtstrasse, we built up a, a picture of Kitty, although it's incomplete. And that's because, obviously, if people go to brothels or patronise brothels, they usually don't want it spread around so that their friends and families know about it. It's usually all hidden in the depths of, uh, of the shadows. So it's hardly surprising that uh, not a hell of a lot is known about Kitty and that her actions are still open to different interpretations. Sure. Now, you mentioned those different interpretations. I mean, what are they? What, what do we know about her relationship and her attitude to Nazism and how willingly she helped Heydrich? The only previous book about Salon Kitty was a book that was published in the early 70s. The title in this country is Madame Kitty. It was first published in German by a journalist with a remarkable life himself. He had been a, a Luftwaffe member during the war called Peter Norden. That was, his, uh, that was his pen name. And he made up quite a lot of facts that weren't strictly true. In fact, he himself called the book a documentary novel. In other words, it was a mishmash of fact and fiction. Peter Norden uh, uh, told us that Kitty had been an anti-Nazi and indeed had tried to escape to Britain late in the 30s when she could see that the war was coming and had smuggled currency abroad, some sewn into the underwear of her girls, who she sent over to London. And the aim was to set up in business, a brothel in business in London. And she was going to manage that. And this has been suggested by three of her Jewish clients who'd fled from Nazi Germany before the war and settled in Britain. And they invited her over and said, look, you can do the same thing as you were doing in Berlin in Britain. She did go over on a sort of reconnaissance mission and she had a dinner with one of these Jewish former clients in the Dorchester Hotel in Park Lane. And then she unwisely returned to Germany. But when she heard that the Nazis had this plan to turn the brothel into a listening post, she very rapidly attempted to flee via the Netherlands to Britain. She rather rushed out rather than see it converted into a spy centre. And then, according to Norden, she was followed by the Gestapo, arrested and brought back to Berlin, where she was brutalised in the headquarters of the SS Gestapo in the Prince Albrechtstrasse and more or less compelled to go along with the Nazi plans to turn her brothel into a spy centre. 
and she was threatened that if she didn't do so, she would be charged with smuggling currency to Britain and confined to a concentration camp. So she more or less had to go along with them. We think that that is probably roughly what did happen. We think that Norden got this right, that his details were so detailed about it that it makes sense that Kitty was compelled to go along with the, with the Nazi plans because she, we know she wasn't a Nazi herself. She helped Jewish people, her neighbours, several of her neighbours were deported to their deaths in concentration camps. And we know that she helped one particular woman who was given a false identity and worked as a kitchen assistant in the kitchens of the brothel, a woman called Rosie Janssen. We know about her. We have a copy of her false ID card. And she escaped and survived the Holocaust. And she told her story on American TV after the war. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I mean, was this a tactic the Nazis use often to basically blackmail people into helping them because they could face really dire consequences if they never? Absolutely. It was all part and parcel of Himmler and Heydrich establishing a totalitarian state in Germany in which neighbours spied on each other. Anyone who listened to foreign radio stations was in danger of arrest and confinement to a concentration camp. The Nazis had a policy which became known as Nacht und Nebel, that means night and fog, by which people could be thrown into concentration camps and no one would know what had happened to them. And even if they were lucky enough to be released from the camps, they would be sworn to secrecy and threatened that they would be returned to the camps if they told anyone anything what had happened to them and they came out absolutely terrified and broken and so people could only imagine the horrors that went on in, in the camps and this of course helped to establish this as it were fog of silence that descended on germany in which people crept around in absolute fear of the consequences of the of the remotest transgressing of nazi laws now you write in the book that having sat clients down and plied them with champagne of spirits, Kitty would produce a book of alluring photographs of the 20 or so women who, who worked in her brothel. Now, as we, we know now, there was a lot more to these women than met the eye at the time. So how did the Nazis go about recruiting them? What kind of qualities were they looking for? There's a famous film called Belle de Jour about a middle-class housewife who gets her thrills literally moonlighting as a prostitute. And uh, this is what happened in the case of Salon Kitty, that the Nazis were looking for not only middle class, but upper class German women who were prepared either for motives of thrills or for their loyalty to the Nazi regime to moonlight as prostitutes in Salon Kitty. They were looking for intelligent women who would be able to ask questions of the clients and extract useful information for Heydrich. And this is what they did. They recruited such women to moonlight as, as prostitutes in the brothel. 
And so they were, in fact, secret service agents as well as prostitutes. Is there any evidence that this succeeded? Did they glean useful information from this spying operation? The main evidence that we have that they did comes from Heydrich's deputy, a man called Walter Schellenberg, who survived the war and was put on trial and was given a short prison sentence for his activities and then released because he was dying of cancer. He he died in the mid-50s. But he did have time to write his memoirs, or at least a version of his memoirs, rather scrappily put-together version that was published in England and then in Germany, in which he says that they did glean important information, although they didn't specify what this was. I think that one particular piece of information was of a very important client, a VIP who we do know patronised Salon Kitty, was the foreign minister of Italy, who was also happened to be the son-in-law of the fascist dictator of Italy, Benito Mussolini. His name was Count Ciano. And Count Ciano, who had a very high sex drive and, in fact, had had an affair with Wallace Simpson, later the Duchess of Windsor, as a young man when he was stationed in China as a diplomat. He used to regularly visit Berlin and demanded women when he got there. So the Italian ambassador in Berlin was deputed one of his duties was to provide women for his boss, for Count Ciano. And he definitely patronised Salon Kitty because we have the evidence of a surviving call girl prostitute called Lisa Ackerman, who says she went to bed with Ciano and she noticed that he never removed his black socks when they were in bed together. He, we think, probably talked about his scepticism about Mussolini's alliance with Germany. He was very much against the alliance. He wrote detailed diaries which were published after the war in which he expressed his scepticism about the increasing alliance and closeness between Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. And eventually he tried to overthrow Mussolini, his own father-in-law, and suffered the consequences. He was shot on Hitler's orders by a firing squad in Verona in northern Italy towards the end of the war. But we think that he probably was guilty of indiscretions when he visited Salon Kitty, which were picked up by the bugs and by the listening ears. So, I mean, that information in itself seems to have made the whole enterprise worthwhile, because that's pretty important information, isn't it? Yes, it was. The actual listening operation closed down during the war, not least because Salon Kitty was heavily damaged in an Allied bombing raid in 1943. So at the most, it only went on for two to three years uh, before it was closed down, probably because there weren't so many foreign, important foreign visitors coming to Berlin anymore, possibly because the Nazis themselves were got around that Salon Kitty was a dangerous place that anything they said there would be picked up and reported back to Heydrich. We know, by the way, that Heydrich himself visited the brothel, visited his own brothel as a client, because he ordered that the microphone should be switched off during the course of his visit. And he got very angry when this actually apparently didn't happen and that the details of his own visit were recorded by his own microphones, which is rather ironic. That takes me on nicely to my next question, because as you point out, and you write in the foreword to the book, the the Nazis used and abused sex when they came to power in 1933. On the one hand, repressing the more overt 
manifestations of eroticism and on the other hand abusing it for their own perverse purposes. Now as Heydrich's actions suggest there's quite a lot of hypocrisy, double standards going on here. The, the Nazis were very much not doing what they were preaching to the rest of the population. I mean, can you give us a few examples of that hypocrisy, please? Yes, of course. One of the clients of the brothel was, besides Heydrich himself, who was a married man, uh, as we know, was Josef Goebbels, the Nazis' propaganda mastermind. And he also frequented the brothel, and Goebbels was notorious. As the propaganda minister, he was in charge of the Third Reich's film and theatre industries. He was the total cultural czar, if you like, of Nazi Germany. And he was notorious for giving the cast and couch treatment to promising and beautiful actresses who were totally dependent on him for their employment, of course. He had a, a famous affair with a Czech actress called Lida Barova, who he was genuinely in love with and wanted to leave his wife, Magda, and go off with, uh, with Lida. And, of course, this infuriated Hitler and he didn't allow it to happen. It nearly derailed Goebbels' career. And it was the one time in his otherwise slavish loyalty to Hitler that he was prepared to defy his boss and even wreck his own career for love of this beautiful young Czech actress. And he... Also, of course, he, he was not faithful to any woman, one woman, and he had numerous affairs, as I say, with actresses and starlets, and he also, of course, patronised brothels like Salon Kitty. So there are several examples of uh, Nazi leaders who did that, including a general called Fromm, the man who actually shot Count von Stauffenberg the leader of the bomb plot against Hitler in 1944, Friedrich Fromm, he definitely went to the brothel, and so did the foreign minister von Ribbentrop, Joachim von Ribbentrop, who was probably one of the financiers of the brothel, his ministry, although he may not have known that. We're not sure where the funds to set up the brothel as a listening post came from, but it could well have come from, from the foreign ministry. So all this is very different from the, the Nazis' public pronouncements on personal morality and, 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 and behaviour. I mean, how did their rise to power change the picture for Berlin? As you mentioned before, Berlin was in the 1920s and early 1930s as widely known for its decadence and its loose lifestyle. How did that change under the Nazis? Well, the Nazis actually completely clamped down on prostitution and sex generally. They passed laws restricting and even banning prostitution. And their official doctrine, of course, was that women should be housewives and mothers. They, they shouldn't work, really, but they should be at home breeding and raising children for the Reich. This was the official Nazi line. But hardly any of the Nazi leaders, the Palatins, were themselves models of fidelity and a straight and narrow sex life. Most of them had mistresses, or in the case of Ernst Röhm, the leader of the SA Brown shirts until he was personally executed, had male lovers. So none of them, not even Himmler, who was the most puritanical of the Nazi leaders, led a faithful life as a, as, a, as a married husband. Even Himmler had a mistress uh, by whom he had two illegitimate children. So it was a complete and utter hypocrisy. The laws that they preached, practised, and expected 
all Germans to obey and their own private lives. Hitler himself, who had a mysterious, there's still a lot of debate about his sexuality, whether he was either asexual or whether or, or whether he indulged in sadomasochistic perversions. He did have relationships with several women, as well as his mistress, his major mistress, Eva Brown, who he married in the last days of his life and committed suicide with. Hitler didn't really care about the sex lives of his closest followers as long as they didn't interfere with the smooth running of the state, as it were. He didn't expect, he said, his men to behave like girls at a ladies' finishing school. In other words, he didn't mind them being rough, tough, violent, and even sexually incontinent, as long as it didn't get in the way of his smooth running of the state. Something that also comes through quite strongly from the book is the petty jealousies and, and competing personalities within the Nazi regime. The book really paints a picture of, a, of a, an administration that, far from being a finely tuned machine, was riven by yeah, rivalries and jealousies. I mean, how does um, the tale of Salon Kitty expose those rivalries? I think that really Hitler's whole philosophy of governing was to divide and rule. He never let any of his minions, of his closest followers, establish too much power on their own. They all had to work towards Hitler. That was the, the phrase that was used. They all had to tailor their policies in order to please the Fuhrer who had total power over them. Of course, within his circle, there was a lot of rivalry. In fact, they all more or less hated each other. Goebbels, Goering, Speer... They all were jealous of each other. And my contribution to the book was really to set the brothel at Salon Kitty in the context of Nazi policies on sexuality and to expose the hypocrisy of the Nazi chieftains, the Nazi leaders, which, were, of course, were kept secret from the majority of the German population because Goebbels had total control over the media. Even so... Goebbels had a reputation. Everyone knew about his propensity for the cast and couch treatment. And he had nicknames which alluded to this. And people did make jokes in private about the Nazi leaders and their personal habits and called Goering the fat one and things like that. Had they known about this, if you told a joke about Hitler and Goering and people like that and Goebbels, you risked, literally risked, your own execution. It was a crime because, it, it, especially after the war had begun, it would be seen by the Nazi regime as aiding and bringing comfort to the enemy to laugh or joke about the Nazi leaders. Now, you mentioned Hermann Goring there. I mean, would I be right in saying that he used a sexual scandal to bring down one of his rivals, Field Marshal Werner Blomberg. I wonder if you could tell us about that briefly, please. The Nazis themselves did use sex as a way of enhancing and amassing their personal power. And one of the most notorious of this was that Hitler wanted to get rid of the high command of the army because the army was the only group in society once he'd been appointed chancellor in January 1933 who actually had the power to remove him. And the commander of the armed forces, Werner von Blomberg, 
who had played a big part in bringing Hitler to power, suddenly started to get cold feet and he was worried about where Hitler's expansionist policy was going. So he, he was a widower, an elderly widower in his 60s. He got to know a young woman who had a past, i.e. she was an ex-prostitute. And he married her. He fell in love with her mar and married her. And uh, Goering and Hitler both attended the, the wedding as witnesses and were happy to, to do so, that, the, that their field marshal had got married. But as soon as Blomberg had married and the couple had departed on their honeymoon, the truth came out about his wife, his bride, that she was a prostitute and had even been prosecuted for selling photographs herself in sexually compromising positions. So she was a woman with a past. And as soon as Hitler found out about this from Goering, he flew into a rage and he insisted that Blomberg had to resign. And he made himself, Hitler, the head of the army, the Supreme Fuhrer. And from then on, every single soldier in Germany, from Field Marshal down to the humblest private, had to swear an oath of personal loyalty to Hitler. And this was one of the main factors that kept the army on side and unwilling to move against Hitler when indeed the war started to be lost because they had taken this personal oath of loyalty to Hitler. And that all came out of the Nazis using this sex scandal against Blomberg to achieve personal power for the Fuhrer. So, Nigel, you're, you're a historian of 20th century history who over the years has done an awful lot of research into the, the rise of Nazism. What new did you learn about the Third Reich from your research for this book? And, and what surprised you most? I didn't think I could learn any more about the cynicism of the Nazis. But what did surprise me, in a way, was the fact that people were forced into very uncomfortable choices. I mean, and it would take a lot of courage, but there were people prepared to do so. There were a few people prepared to do something against the regime. And I think one of them was Kitty Schmidt herself, because we do have evidence that she did what she could, and it was only a little thing, to help Jews who were being hunted and persecuted and deported to their deaths. Even there were Jews living in actually in the building of that housed Salon Kitty. So she had the Holocaust, as it were, going on under her nose. She was well aware that Jews were being deported to their deaths. But when one of her clients, a war hero called Count von Luckner, a war hero from the a naval war hero of the, of the Great War, of the First World War, who was known as the Sea Devil for his nautical exploits, when he brought a hunted Jewish woman to Kitty's attention and said that he had found uh, an identity card for this woman of an Aryan woman who'd been killed in an air raid, she was able to shelter in Salon Kitty, literally under the Nazis' noses, as a kitchen assistant and thus survived the Holocaust and survived the war. And Kitty Schmidt must have been instrumental in her survival by employing this Jewish woman in the kitchens of the brothel. The fact that Kitty was able to do that, despite being forced to cooperate with the Nazis, shows that some people were aware of the great crimes that were committed by the regime and were courageously prepared to do something to oppose it, even though it must be said that the majority prefer to keep their noses clean and keep their heads down and keep quiet and not do anything about it. 
A substantial minority by the end of the war were still fanatical Nazis, still believed in Hitler and still believed in the regime. That was Nigel Jones, Kitty Salon, Sex, Spying and Surveillance in the Third Reich, is published by John Blake. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.